Welcome to The Public Morality. Author Alexandra Hudson has written a prescient text in her latest offering, Soul of Civility. There are strands of Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural in that it appeals to the better angels of our nature, a Socratic challenge that the unexamined life is not worth living, along with the gentle but no less firm reminder in the tradition of Martin Luther King that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. Hudson is the founder of Civic Renaissance, publication and intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth. It is truly my pleasure to welcome her to the public morality. Thank you, Byron, for having me. Let, let's begin by having you talk about how the writings of two Martins, that would be Martin Luther King and Martin Buber, <laughs> influenced this work. I love that question because it's one I haven't gotten yet. So thank you. Uh, a fan of both Martins, uh, Martin Martin Luther, the uh, kind of uh, beginner, what's it, what, um, instigator of the uh, Protestant Reformation, and then and then Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So let's start in chronological uh, order. I I talk about Martin Martin Luther in my book in the context of one of my intellectual heroes, uh, and an unsung hero of moderation in history, uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam. So Erasmus was this intellectual superstar of the Renaissance season uh, era of, of European history. He kind of was peripatetic. He, he he would never spend more than you know a year or two in any one place. And he just traveled from court to kingdom, from to court. He was like amazing dinner conversation. He would tutor princes and just an absolute genius. He was a member of the Catholic Church, but was also critical of the Catholic Church. He, you know, was critical of their use of indulgences, corruption, illegitimate children. There are many reasons that he criticized Catholic Church, but he so loved the church that he never left it. He respected the institution enough to criticize it, but loved it so much that he did, never left it. Um, and it's said that you know, he, he and Luther were friends, and, 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 Luther, and Erasmus was very influential on, on Martin Luther. Uh, and it's said that Erasmus laid the egg of the Reformation that Luther later hatched during the, during the Protestant Reformation later. And, um, and so I talk about Martin Luther in the context of, of Erasmus because they had this famous falling out. Luther was kind of cantankerous and, and uh, kind of curmudgeonly, especially later in his life. And they had this you know famous falling out uh, where Luther, I think, went a little too far. He got a little bit too vicious and, and ad hominem and, and apocalyptic and his rhetoric um, was very vicious towards Erasmus, who was incredibly peace-loving and ironic. Erasmus, you know, he was a truth teller. He was not afraid to criticize the Catholic Church, uh, whereas, you know, Luther was got very vicious. He called the Pope the Antichrist, and, and it, it became, it, it devolved very quickly into, into, into violence, the Protestant Reformation. Um, but I, I, I talk about Martin Luther in the context of, of Erasmus because Erasmus is, again, not claimed by the Catholic Church because he was critical by the Catholic Church and not claimed by Protestants because he never left the Catholic Church. He didn't forge his own tribe like Luther and other Protestants like John Calvin or Zwingli did. And so uh, again, I I, uh, I love Erasmus and I, I have this vision of uh, staging a revival. I think Erasmus doesn't get the dap he's due in history. He's known for his translation of the Greek New Testament, 
which is a kind of, and he's known in secular circles primarily. He's not known in religious; they're kind of intellectual circles. So, um, anyway, I, 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 Luther and Erasmus. That that story, I think, is is a compelling. Uh, Luther is a compelling foil in that way about how not to go too far. Civility, as I conceive it in my book, the soul of civility is different from mere politeness. Um, politeness is manners. It's etiquette, it's it's behavior, it's technique, uh, whereas civility is a disposition of the heart that sees others as our moral equals who are worthy of respect just because they're people just like us. Um, and, uh, and and again, people have, who have equal moral worth to us, um, they have the imago dei and they are created in God's image and, and are worthy of dignity and respect um, in light of that. And that civility, it's it's both a, uh, it, it puts parameters in place in how we interact. On one hand, it demands that we act sometimes. Um, that, for example, sometimes civility requires being impolite, telling hard truths and engaging in robust debate with others. And that's what Erasmus did. He he felt obligated to criticize things that practices in the Catholic Church that he thought were harmful to the church. So, so civility on one hand demands and requires action. And we'll talk about that again when we get to Dr. King in a second. But civility at the same time, while it demands action, sometimes it takes certain conduct off the table in others. It doesn't allow for, you know, things to devolve into violence, right? That 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 degrade the dignity, the per- personality, the personhood of, of others. And it takes ad hominem attack off the table as well. And Luther was, um, shall we say, known for his ad hominem attack, especially later in his life. Well, well, we can blame his health issues if we want to be charitable, but definitely, definitely a little cantankerous. So um, happy to move on to to Dr. King now. So part of my story is that I was in government. Uh, I, I love learning. I love de- ideas. And I you know, went into government just out of grad school where I'd studied public policy at the London School of Economics and still fresh out of my undergrad where I'd studied philosophy and history. And you know, I, I wanted to talk about Plato when I was in government and Plato on education. And, and my, my peers in government wanted to talk about the Administrative Procedures Act. And there was just such this radical mismatch between everything I knew and loved in life and was good at and what was required to survive and thrive in government. <laughs> and I saw these two extremes in government. On one hand, there were people who were... Um, They'd sharp elbows and they were willing to step on anyone to get to get ahead and get what they wanted out of life. And then the other contingent, at first, I thought they were my people. They were people who would they were polished and poised and suave. And they were, they would flatter me one moment and smile one moment and stab me in the back <laughs> the next. And and that really perplexed me. Growing up, my mother taught manners. And she would say to me that manners were an outward extension of our inward character. And that's why manners mattered. And yet here I was with, with, um, surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. And so that, uh, I went from that, I had a really important uh, experience, uh, in in government too. and, And I went to, um, an event at the Aspen Institute in Y River, Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. And there I was with congressional staffers and people, you know, political appointees and, and, and people in government from across the political spectrum. And we were invited there by the Aspen Institute to talk about the role of civility in public life. And it was incredible to be able to be um, with, with people I disagreed with on many issues, but there, but these extremes that I had that had defined my spirit my season in government, extreme hostility and extreme polypests, those weren't there 
in our in our conversations, our roundtable dialogues about civility in public life. Um, we respected each other too much to not tell hard truths, but but it required that we told told truths in in ways that uh, we actually could could hear. And there was this basic camaraderie and respect that we that we had for one another that again it was absent during my time in government and it was it was while we were reading Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail that I, you know, had this sort of light bulb moment about civility. Like again, that there's this difference between civility and politeness. That there are so many, so many important insights that that were clarified for me during the season this this weekend at Y River and reading Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. Um, you know, what one one is that one example is that um, Dr. King says that there are are just laws and unjust laws, and that a just law uplifts and affirms the dignity of the human person, and an unjust law corrodes the dignity of the human person and human personality. And I realize that the same thing applies to just and unjust social norms. You know, informal social laws. There there are some that uh, ennoble. And, 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 and affirm the dignity of the human person and others that degrade. And how do we meaningfully distinguish those that facilitate the, the project of, of flourishing across difference and those that divide us and antagonize us and allows us and breeds feelings, breed feelings of self-righteousness um, across difference instead? Uh, another key insight from, from Dr. King's letter was that uh, civility, incivility was a lose-lose game. Dr. King talks about segregation uh being mutually uh disennobling it def- it, def- it deforms both the um the soul he says of the segregator because it gives him a false sense of superiority and the segregated because it gives them a false sense of inferiority and that's actually uh that the same is true i realized about incivility that it's easy today to hear people say, you know, nice guys finish last and, and you can't be decent to the other side and, and win. And what matters right now is winning and all bets are off because the stakes are too high. We just have to, you know, do whatever is necessary to succeed. And and yet what Dr. King helped me realize um, in, in, in a, a close rereading of his letter was that there's no such thing as winning when you're cruel and uncivil and degrade the dignity and personhood of, of, of someone else, that it's mutually um, dis- disennobling. It hurts both sides. It hurts the soul of the person to whom one is uncivil and it hurts, um, it hurts one's own soul as well, that we are made, we, our souls are deformed. We're made less human and less humane when we are cruel to others. So that incivility is a lose-lose game. And so the book, the title of my book, the soul of civility pays homage to Dr. King in that way. So thanks for that thoughtful question, Byron. You begin chapter one by stating countless times each day our lives are made more difficult by the incivility of others so it made me wonder is incivility in your view the human condition's default position or is it what you state later in the first chapter that the human condition is defined by two competing forces our love of others and our love of self I don't think that those two things are incompatible. I think that both aspects of who we are are present from the get-go. That that you know, as Blaise Pascal said, one of my favorite 
uh, thinkers and philosophers and this this French polymath uh, of the of the Enlightenment period who was skeptical of the Enlightenment project. But Pascal says in his Pensee that the human condition, you know, has this duality. It's defined by the greatness and the wretchedness of man. And yes, absolutely, we're defined by uh, altruism. We're capable of beneficence and goodness and charity towards others, uh, and we're 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 incredibly social as a species. We become fully human in community and in relationship with others, and yet morally and biologically, we're fallen. We we are defined by self love, and we are we are geared to meet our own needs before others. And so, it's both and. Those are two foundational tensions. Uh, two foundational facets of our nature that ensure that incivility will always be a problem. This question is the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? It's an essential question now, but it's also a timeless question. It's not a now problem. It's not an America problem. It's not uh, you know, a Donald Trump problem. It is, it is the question of the human condition. And, and that is why people across time and place have been grappling with it. And part of the fun part of my book was reading these manuals, these civility handbooks from ancient Egypt, the Middle Ages, and and um and you know, the Middle Eastern, you know, uh region of the world. And there's this remarkable continuity where people have to rise up and say, don't like, think about the well-being of others alongside yourselves. That is time and time again, what you hear across, across history and across culture, restrain the ego, the baser parts of who we are so that we can flourish in community and relationship with others. And people would not have had to write these handbooks and make these mandates if everyone were already doing it. It's because it's not natural to us. It, the, the, the desire is there to be in community and relationship, and yet we self-sabotage. Pascal said, man is a chimera. And a chimera was this ancient Greek mythological creature that had, you know, the body of a bull, the head of a chicken. It was like all of these, you know, amalgamations of different uh, animals that, you know, a man is, man, human beings are cro- at, at cross purposes with ourselves at all times. Greatness and wretchedness were a conundrum. Um, but that civility, uh, the habits and mores, the disposition that uh, that come from uh, the disposition of respecting others can help us meaningfully um, overcome our selfish nature so we can flourish and thrive and build community and civilization. Your definition, at least in my view, in my reading of the text, bears similarity to the theological definition of love, which is to affirm the humanity of one's neighbor. So, so when Martin Luther King speaks of loving one's enemy, he's not talking about necessarily liking one's adversary, but rather recognition that his humanity is inextricably linked to his adversaries. Your thoughts? I, I thank you for bringing up Dr. King again. Like he, he again was clarifying for me and how he embodied this essential difference between civility and politeness and embodied the way in which being civil to someone, actually loving them, actually respecting them, required being impolite sometimes, breaking rules of propriety and and, and politesse and, and politeness for the sake of actually respecting someone. And in his training for people who engaged in his peaceful nonviolent resistance, it was, this, it was purification. Again, it's purification of self and motives and cultivating a love and affection for and respect for the Imago Dei and, and the human dignity 
of the person that they were or people that they were protesting. And that was absolutely essential to go into the protest with that basic love and affection for the person whom they were or people they were protesting. Um, and again, back to this idea that that civility both sometimes requires conduct, but also takes co- certain conduct off the table. In Dr. King's conception, that was the, the protests, the sit-ins, the marches, that was actually an expression of love and respect, confronting and the 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 bigoted and racist segregators with the hard truths that that their their views on on segregation were were monstrous and abhorrent. That's the loving thing to do. So it demanded certain conduct, but it took other conduct, you know, violence and other dehumanizing conduct off the table as well. How would you respond to those who read your book and say that our current public discourse is neither polite nor civil? How would you respond to them? So there are two, there are two, I would, uh, there are two main contingents today. Too often we conflate these terms, civility and politeness. And as a result, we don't have clarity about what we're talking about. And that's my hope. My prayer for my book is that it offers clarity about the difficulty of this problem, the timelessness of this problem, and hopefully, you know, why we should have humility as we approach this problem, but also hopefully, you know, pointing us towards some meaningful um, solution. So there are two main contingents today. There are people on one hand who say, we just need more p- civility and politeness in our society. Um, and, and they use these terms interchangeably. They harken back to this golden age of gentility and chivalry. And then there is a another contingent that says, you know, we need less civility and politeness today, that civility and politeness they're tools of the patriarchy. They're tools of, of, of white supremacists to keep people who are powerless in society in positions of powerlessness and to silence and suppress dissent. And, and civility and politeness are enemies of social project, progress. So we need less civility and politeness in, in, in public life. And I would say to both those contingents and to the contingent you addressed, which is those that say we're neither civil nor polite, um, that that we, we they, again, we all misunderstand what, what these terms actually mean. And it's, it, it's no fault of anyone, really. Um, Samuel Johnson in his 1755 dictionary, the first English dictionary defines civility in terms of politeness and politeness in terms of civility. If you go to dictionary.com right now, you'll see the exact same thing. Civility term defined in terms of politeness, politeness, civility. And my argument is that we need to disambiguate them to understand more about what we want out of society and what we need less of. And I think we need less tone policing, less, less politeness, less. Uh, and we have a lot of that today. We have people who are really concerned about using the right words and saying the right thing at the right time. They're really concerned about the rules, but we need less of that, I think, and more actual civility, which is the true respect of the imago dei that we all bear. So I I would say to your question about people who think that we're neither civil nor polite, I'd say we we have too much politeness, too little civility. We we need more of the former, less of the latter. Hmm. There is a... uh culture in America, these are my words, my observation. And I'm not sure if it's a majority, but there's definitely a, a boisterous segment of society that views civility as you define it as synonymous with weakness. 
How do you push back against what I view as an entrenched belief? Um, it's a good question. So again, I put a dialogue, Socrates and Machiavelli, um, in, 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 in engaging this question. Again, there is a contention of people today who say the stakes are too high to be, to be weak and to be kind, uh, that we have to be strong, put up a good friend, um, in order to destroy the enemy and win. And Socrates, and again, Dr. King said, said similar things, um, influenced by by Socrates as he was, that there's no such thing as winning when it comes to incivility towards others, that people who are uncivil don't realize that they're often don't realize that they're hurting themselves, that they embody an unjust soul, a sick soul, as Socrates would say. Socrates said that um, vice and viciousness towards others was sickness of the soul and that people who have vicious souls and are vicious to others they don't deserve our anger they deserve our empathy and our compassion because they're they're people who are sick whereas virtue and kindness benevolence towards others that that those are the symptoms of a of a of a of a just soul that that is a well-ordered and a healthy soul Socrates said, and that just as having a sick and unjust and vicious soul is its own punishment, that having a virtuous soul, a healthy soul is its own reward. And so when people like Machiavelli would say that the ends justifies the means and nobody who is bound by codes of decency and honor towards others and respect for others, no one like that is ever going to gain and maintain power. They're never going to win, Machiavelli says. Socrates would say, but what game are you playing? You know, your people who, who live by that logic are playing the short game. They're not playing the long game. They're, they're not playing the game of eternity. And they're not seeing that those short-term victories... Those have long-term consequences for, for one's own soul. And I love that line from Al Capone who says, don't mistake my kindness for weakness. He says, I'm kind to everyone. <laughs> but when someone is unkind to me, weak is not what you are going to remember about me. Al Capone says, I don't know if Al Capone's like a model of, of civility, but I think that's an important point to, to remember that kindness ought not be considered a shorthand for weakness because it's not. As you look at the uh, landscape over time has just a very understanding of incivility taken on different forms in different periods of history. It has. So the, the rules of politeness and etiquette, those, those change over time. Um, often these rules of propriety are tools of insiders and people in positions of power um, to, to use to, and weaponize towards people of lower classes and powerlessness to, to keep them out of society. And they have to change the rules regularly because the moment that the nouveau riche or the lower classes adopt these norms or consumption patterns of politeness, of quote unquote polite conduct or you know, what's necessary to be a, a genteel and refined person. Uh, the moment that the lower classes learn those things, the upper classes have to change because um, otherwise, how are they going to be able to distinguish who's in and who's out? And there are several great examples of this from, from history that I love. One is um, 
the the rule against wearing white after Labor Day. So this rule originates from the American Gilded Age, where the the Emily Emily Vanderbilts of the world um, suddenly had to erect all of these you know arcane rules for how to distinguish themselves, the old money, from the nouveau riche. Uh, in 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 America, and so this is one of these arcane and arbitrary rules that you know if you were caught if you were that were erected by the old money, so that if you were caught wearing white after Labor Day, you could be a subject of derision. You exposed yourself as someone who didn't know the rules, the secret codes of of, of etiquette uh, that were the stuff of the that were determined by the old money to keep the new money out. And, and there, there, there are examples of that across history and culture. Um, there's a whole genre of legislation called sumptuary laws that were intended to, um, you know, make it so people uh, of lower classes couldn't consume or wear wear clothes like uh, or or act in ways that would make them appear people uh, uh, like people of upper class. So, anyway, yes, the rules of politeness tend to change across history and across culture, but the the the, the, the civility. The guidelines of civility are remarkably timeless, and there's a remarkable continuity in them. And, and for example, did you know, Byron, that the oldest book in the world is a civility handbook? It's given us given to us from ancient Egypt, 2700 BC, and it's called The Maxims or the Teachings of Ptahhotep. Ptahhotep was a very powerful Egyptian visor. He had even been offered an opportunity to become pharaoh. He had been in the room where it happens his entire life. And yet um, he turned it all down to retire in, in, in a kind of quiet tranquility and um, peaceful pastoral sort of life. And, and there, after he retired, he reflected on the timeless principles of human flourishing. And he he thought to himself, you know, you know what, what? And he wrote this book for Pharaoh's son, but it was widely consumed uh, in ancient Egypt and across Egyptian culture, and, and also arguably influenced um, the ancient Greeks as well. And um, what's fun is that if you read the teachings of Ptahhotep right now, they could just as easily be in a Miss Manners column in Judith Martin's Washington Post column. <laughs> Today, they're just remarkably, there's a remarkable continuity. For example, they're, they're just kind of conventional wisdom of, of, of ethics and decency towards others. For example, Patahotep says, do not be cruel to people who you have power over. Be kind to all people, especially those whom you have power over. Patahotep says, don't be good to your friends just when you want something. Be good, to them, good to, be good to them all the time. He says, don't gossip. And about three or four different maxims he dedicates to uh, reminding people of, of the lethality of gossip to human trust and human relationship. And again, it's worth noting that two things. He wouldn't have had to write down these maxims if everyone were already complying and following them, right? Like he wrote them down because he saw a need and he wanted to remind people of the timeless principles of human flourishing. And again, um, secondly, a like all of Patahotep's mandates speak to an ethos of 
restraining the ego are our immediate and baser impulses and desires so that we can flourish in community with others. There's there's this undertone of self of self-restraint, of self-rule, so we can flourish with others. And again, that's the hallmark that of true civility, restraining the baser aspects of ourselves so we can th- thrive and respecting others so we can thrive in in relationship and community. There is a line from one of my favorite films. I love classic movies. Um and in, in, in the the movie is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And I love that. Yeah. The line goes like this. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Now, with your true versus faux civilization motif that you write about in the book, are you concerned that 21st century America might be guilty of exchanging the fact with the legend and perhaps doesn't have the civic maturity to do otherwise? Could you restate and reframe the question slightly? Sure, I'll I'll reframe it. That if if you think about, you talk about in your book, true versus full civilization. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and tying that to the man who shot Liberty Valance when he says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And are you are you concerned that that's what 21st century America is doing, printing the legend instead of the fact? and really just doesn't have what I'm calling civic maturity to do other than print the legend. Hmm. Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that there are, um, there's a real temptation in the human condition across history and culture to locate a civilization's worth and even like what a civilization is in things like sophistication of language, of writing, of technology, of architecture, of of progress, of advancement. And yet that's not what true civilization is. True civilization, as Samuel Johnson said, is, is defined by how one treats the least of these in a society, the poor, the impoverished, the vulnerable. It's, it's defined by respect for individual basic human dignity, especially respect for and wanting to protect the most vulnerable in a society. That's what a true civilization is and and how often um, dictators, they engage in this sort of sleight of hand. You know, look at my beautiful buildings and look how well-governed my society is. Don't look over here as I slaughter my people and abuse ethnic minorities. And the example I give in my book is um, I, I, t- I tell the story of both Epic of Gil- the Epic of Gilgamesh and Saddam Hussein <laughs> in the same chapter. So the Epic of Gilgamesh, the story there is that Gilgamesh is the ruler of Uruk. And, and Gilgamesh is thought to be a, a real historic king in, in ancient Sumeria, in, in, in the city of Uruk. And this is, again, he is the leader of the civilized world, the epicenter of sophistication and technology, and like this urbane center in the whole world. In ancient Sumeria, which is a place known to be the cradle of civilization. And yet, Gilgamesh is a tyrant and he's known for, you know, just doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. He he enslaves people, he takes, he 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 robs people of their possessions. He is infamous and despised for for taking what's called first 
Knight's Rites, which is this monstrous practice where he would take a woman on her wedding night and sleep with her before she could sleep with her husband. So he was despised by his people and, and, and the people of Uruk cried out to the Babylonian gods and said, please save us from this tyrant, Gilgamesh. The gods hear the pleas of the people, the Babylonian people, and they create from clay Enkidu, who's this kind of primal human, again, part part animal, part beast made from clay. And Enkidu is, is definitely, you know, quote unquote, less civilized. He's closer to the earth. He's he's uncouth. He's not refined by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, like he prances with the animals, like the animals in the Epic of Gilgamesh recognize Enkidu as one of their own. And yet Enkidu marches to Uruk and declares uh, battle uh, d- d- with, with Gilgamesh and challenges Gilgamesh to a duel. Long into the night, they fight, and uh, the people of Uruk watch on who's going to win. Finally, Gilgamesh defeats Enkidu. But then Enkidu does something quite surprising. He reaches out and extends a, ha- extends a hand of friendship to Gilgamesh. And maybe even more surprising, Gilgamesh accepts that hand of friendship. And so through his kindness, Enkidu conquers the this 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 horrible monstrous tyrant who's known for you know ravaging the vulnerable and young women. And through Enkidu's kindness, transforms Gilgamesh from this monster into an ideal hero and king. And then the remainder of the Epic of Gilgamesh is these adventures that Gilgamesh and Enkidu uh, run off and, and have together, vanquishing, uh, you know, vanquishing gods and, and monsters and things like that. But the point is, I love that story because it kind of inverts our understanding and expectations about what true civilization, what barbarism actually is. On one hand, at a superficial level, it can be said Gilgamesh was the king of civilization, a very urbane, sophisticated center. He is this, you know, represents civilization. And, and, and Enkidu, by being made of clay and being, you know, one with the animals, and um, you know, her suit resembling an animal was more barbaric, closer to nature, uncultivated. And yet, Gilgamesh was this monster and tyrant. Like he was a- absolutely uncivilized. He didn't care about the um the, the 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 well-being of the weakest of those in his society he, he abused them whereas Gilgamesh even though he was closer to earth and uncultivated unrefined uncivilized he had the milk of human goodness he was the defender of the people of Uruk the oppressed people and he um again he conquered his kindness conquered the inner tyrant in 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 Gilgamesh uh through his kindness. Which is which is a remarkable story of kind of inverting that those those expectations and traditional conceptions of of civilization and barbarism. Give me the because I remember reading about that. Give me the Saddam Hussein portion of that. Give you the what? Sorry. The Saddam Hussein because because you talk uh, about Saddam yeah, Hussein as yeah, well. Exactly. So <laughs> it's a really interesting uh, historical parallel between that story of the the Epic of Gilgamesh and Saddam Hussein. So Saddam Hussein, when he was ruler of Iraq, again, Iraq is is ancient Sumeria. Geographically, that's the region of the world that is the cradle of civilization. And Saddam Hussein consciously did things 
in his regime to create this this facade of faux civilization. He, in fact, created this you know, incredible palace built with millions of of hand blown, uh, hand created bricks, and on every brick was inscribed uh, something to the effect of, you know, here is the castle of Saddam Hussein, uh, defender and king of true civilization, or something like that. And and so he spent an enormous. Like, everything's gilded in gold, and roads roads are paved, and you know all of these architectural and technological achievements and sophisticated uh, achievements. And yet, he he brutalizes his own people. He uses chemical weapons on his own people. He he abuses and and destroys ethnic minorities. He's a genocidal dictator, you know. And so he's a prime example of someone that embodies this misunderstanding of what true civilization is. It's not. That's faux civilization. Civilization is not again these these linguistic, technological, cultural, architectural achievements. It's how you treat. It's, 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 it's whether a society, and especially a leader, respects the basic human dignity of, of, of our fellow human beings, especially the weakest and most vulnerable in a society, as, um, as Samuel Johnson taught us. On page 49, you write, quote, once a society has lost its reverence for life, once it has come to see its value as a civilization in purely material terms and degraded the personhood of its own citizens or other people groups, it become, it begins to decay. Now, when I read that, I certainly, well, that certainly speaks to how empires historically have imploded, but I also couldn't help think that you had the United States in mind when you wrote that. Say more, please. It's absolutely true uh, that we, I think we have an insufficiently high appreciation in our world today, especially in America, of the profound gift of being human. And the thing is, when we, it starts with appreciating our own humanity. And when we, when we cultivate our own humanity and come to appreciate the gift of our own humanity, we're better able to appreciate that in others. But unfortunately, there are so many forces. So on one hand, on one hand, human nature and the human condition doesn't change. On the other hand, there are many features of our modern contemporary world that are different that we didn't have in past eras. One of those is our social media culture and the ubiquity of technology and media in our lives. And we're, we're fed this steady diet of media of people telling us that the other side is is less than humans. They're barbaric, they're immoral, they're cruel. They're not people that we should or can reason with or live alongside. Um, and in our education system, we're increasingly utilitarian and less explicitly moral in how we approach education. Education across history and culture has been this, this mode uh, of cultivating the best part of ourselves, the fullness of our humanity, and diminishing the worst part of ourselves. Uh, ordering our loves. This is a secular idea that we get from Plato. Plato talked about ordered loves, that being a just human being was human beings whose head, uh, whose rationality and wisdom ruled the, the appetites through the chest, through courage, and through will and self-discipline. That was a just soul. 
And Augustine talked about the ordo amoris, that the rightly ordered loves, uh, where our passions are rightly ordered, where we rebel. And, and, and so Augustine talked about how each one of us are defined by the libido dominendi, which is the, the lust to dominate, which if we indulge it, becomes the dominating lust. The more that we indulge our lust to dominate others, as you know, as Gilgamesh did, it, like Gilgamesh ended up being enslaved by his own passions, his own desires, his own lusts to just, you know, dominate others. Um, so we're defined by the libido dominendi, but also the incurvatus say the inward curve upon the self. And again, that self-love, the moral and biological facet of our nature that means that we're geared to meet our own needs before others. And I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no. Well, that education reorients that. It orders our loves properly. It cultivates our humanity. It helps us love others first and ourselves second. And, and Augustine's framework, uh, it, that's his, his vision of rightly ordered loves as a Christian, as a theist, is the dual commandment. Love God, love others, and self-last. He didn't have to say it because we'll always love ourselves. You never have to tell someone to love themselves. It's always going to be there, and we have to cultivate through exposure to to beauty, to geometry, to space, to math, to physics, to literature, to philosophy, this well-rounded pedagogical exercise of the liberal arts of the humanities is what cultivates our humanity and not just not just helps us become more human, but more humane. Because the more we appreciate the gift of being human in ourselves, the more we appreciate it in others. And again, I think we have an insufficiently high appreciation of the gift of being human in our life and in, in our world today. And so I hope my my book is a part of, of of helping us reclaim that high view of humanity. Well, you know what I was your book, what it does, it puts up, it pushes in my view against what I consider very instinctive the human condition, which is in part to be tribal. And we can even delineate that tribalness even further that if you don't think like me, if you don't look like me, and if you have a different worldview, then you are other. And isn't that part of what your book is pushing up against? And that's very hard for us, in my view, because being tribal is instinctive. Right. Right. Exactly. So we have this, this, this tribal nature is very much ingrained within us. Like we're, we're neophobes, right? We, we trust what we know and who we know, and we trust what we don't know. And so the, the tribe, the, the familial is safe because we know it and the stranger is unsafe. And that goes back to, you know, our hunter-gatherer, it's, it's coeval with, with our species. And we hear a lot about tribalism today, but it's very much ingrained in our species. But there's this other, uh, you know, strand in history that, that talks about and explores a more universalist ethic of what we owe one another just by virtue of the fact that we are all members of the human community. And I, I get to this in my chapter on hospitality, where I talk about that across history and culture, there has this been this ethic of hospitality of showing kindness to the stranger, kindness to the person, um, the, the, the person who is out and down on their luck and who we don't know and who might otherwise die if we don't invite them into our home and provide for their basic needs. Um, and there, there's, there's this whole li- like genre of stories from the Hebrew Bible to, um, 1001 nights, a series of, of, um, vignettes in the 
Arabia and the Middle Eastern tradition to Homer's Odyssey of strangers in disguise, people showing up unannounced as as down in their luck strangers and kind of as a moral test to people like are they going to take them in or not and and that it's 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 often the stories are told um in a, in a in a way that shows favorably those that do take the risk because it's risky uh take the risk of inviting a stranger into your home and and and, and providing for their needs and, and helping them taking them out of the the cold um and and there is this more sort of milk of human goodness uh tradition of hospitality and civility that is more grounded not in us versus them tribalism, but in our common humanity and what we owe others by virtue of, of being human. I love the story of um, Roger Williams in this. So he was the founder of Rhode Island, excommunicated from Massachusetts for being heterodox. And after he was excommunicated by his own tribe, he lived for six months with Native Americans. And he wrote this lovely book called A Key to the Language of the Native American People, where he praises the incredible graciousness and hospitality of the Native Americans who took him in. He says they were way more civilized than his Native Englishmen because they had taken in a stranger. They didn't, his Native Native Englishmen had kicked him out and left him to die. And, and the Native Americans had taken him in. And he said they, they were much more benevolent towards the weakest in society. And he just went through all of these ways in which um, the Native Americans were were more gracious, hospitable, and kind than his Native Englishmen. And again, that that is illuminating of this, this more universal ethic of what we owe one another based on our common humanity um, that I think provides a refreshing and much needed alternative to the story of tribalism that again is very powerful, very seductive. It it it, it emerges from a dark place in the human personality that we all share. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. And there's this rich tradition of this higher mode of, of being an engagement, uh, this sort of common humanity, civility, and, and hospitality, which is a high, high and noble expression of civility. You know, I took note in your text that it, you rely on the wisdom of um, historical truth tellers. Plato, Socrates, Keane, yeah. Albert Schweitzer. Um, I suspect this is my view. We're about three. De- we're about three decades away from discovering the genius of Martha Nussbaum. Um, isn't part of your challenge that, that that you present is that rarely, if ever, truth tellers are appreciated in real time? Yeah, it's definitely true. Truth tellers are often crucified. You know course, to commit suicide in their time. That's absolutely the case. Um, you know, Socrates referred to himself as a gadfly, this this um, annoying truth-telling fly that was meant to prick the conscience and prick the um, prick the Athenian people and tell them hard truths that they didn't necessarily want to hear, but but provide a a candid mirror to uh, to his own society, and he did that as a form of respect for them, for respect for his his fellow citizens, but of course was forced to commit suicide. (laughs) He was convicted and condemned by his fellow Athenians and forced to commit suicide uh, for doing that. So it is costly, very costly to be a truth teller. I mean, look at all the prophets in Hebrew Bible who are excoriated and condemned. Um, Yeah, look at at Christ. Christ is a, a prime example of someone who is civil, but not polite. He Christ 
told hard truths. He confronted and called out hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, people who were obsessed with religious rules and and that, that made them feel like they were good people, but while they sinned in their hearts. And Christ loved them enough to call them out. He respected them enough to, to not coddle them and pretend that there was nothing wrong, that there was no sin in their hearts. But he told them told them hard truths and he, he expressed full emotion, full anger. Um, and, and I think that's a great, a great model and, and caution for us that truth telling is costly, but that doing the right thing is, is its own reward. Even when there are costs associated with it, even, even when, you know, like across history, people have lost their lives for, for being, for being truth tellers, but that's the right thing to do. You write in the introduction, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I want to come back to it, that this book that this book is the question how to do life together. We, there's a dominant zero-sum game ethos pervasive in American democracy right now. Um, so it's not enough for me to get my way. Victory is only achieved when your annihilation is assured. That's my cynical view of things. With that context, how do we live together? Um, not easily is the short <laughs> answer that life together in relationship is the highest and the best life, but it is inherently fragile because again, of this duality in our nature defined by the greatness and wretchedness of man, self-love and love of others. That is the, um, defining feature of the human condition that we are not just one, but truly two. And there I'm quoting, uh, Dr. Jekyll in um, in Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, the, the 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 strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that explores this exact theme of the duality of 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 human nature. Man is not truly one, but truly two. He says, and so because of this, um, human life is not easy. Our our self love is like gravity; it's this it's this centripetal force that will always be present, and that civilization friendship lives and dies in our daily efforts to conquer the self so we can flourish in community it's never a foregone conclusion it is never on autopilot i think anyone listening to this who's married can testify to this marriage at its core is friendship and you know you let your marriage go on autopilot you're not tending tending to it every day and, and nurturing the love the magic the joy the the, the service of uh, of the other um it goes downhill really quickly and but that's a, that's a small metaphor for you know friendship and civilization too that it's it's not easy not a foregone conclusion requires constant vigilant effort and yet it is the stuff of the good life. It's the stuff of human flourishing. Um, we need justice to thrive. Justice is this sort of de minimis, like bare minimum um, that that civility re does require. Like what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed no to others by virtue of our shared humanity? That's the question that civility requires. But civility is on a spectrum. 
And that that sometimes includes um, acts of beneficence. Beneficence is is this lovely old word that means act of goodness. These above and beyond super erogatory acts. Uh, Super erogatory is a concept in Catholic theology of like these bonus points, these above and beyond acts that, you know, you don't necessarily owe, owe everyone, but they are beautiful and noble expressions of ways to respect others. And hospitality is an example of that. So how do we do life together? Not easily, Byron, but it's worth the effort, I think. Uh, finally, in the few minutes we have left, um, spend a moment to talk about uh, your larger project, Civic Renaissance, if you would. Thank you. So Civic Renaissance is my publication and newsletter dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives. And, and please, please, um, please consider joining us over there. Uh, if you want a little more beauty, goodness, and truth in your life. And, uh, I also invite, um, everyone listening to this to consider ordering a copy of the book. And I've created $700 in gifts to every single person who buys the book. Um, and these include an, an ebook called cultivating curiosity, the secret to the life well-lived, to a whole course called Four Civility Books That Will Change Your Life and and many other goodies. So please head over to my website, alexandraohudson.com to claim those goodies. And uh, thank you again for considering pre-ordering the book and for having me, Byron. As I said in the opening, um, Soul of Civility offered, in my view, strands of Lincoln's first inaugural and that it appeals to the better angels of our nature as well as you put forth a Socratic challenge that the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, Alexandra Hudson, I want to thank you uh, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Really enjoyed our discourse. Thank you so much. Thanks, Byron, for having me. Pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.